Are we all caught up? Has everyone read through Canto 4? Has everyone read beyond Canto 4? A little bit. Okay, good. You, you just had to see what was going to happen. Now that Jewin's been sold into slavery. Um, are you dreaming in Otavarima yet? Is stuff occurring to you in Otavarima? Like, now I find I'm walking to my class. The snow is all around me, and the cold is really quite a pain in what French call the ass. <laughs> I wish I were made of other mold than this blank clay, which makes me wish <laughs> that pass or fail was how I <laughs> in this course enrolled. But oh, alas. I take it for a letter. I sure do wish that I were doing better. <laughs> That's not bad. That was totally spontaneous. It's a good thing you record this class. I know. That was just <laughs> totally spontaneous. All right, so you don't find yourself doing that? A little bit? A tiny bit? Like just a so line tired. or two? Sorry? Only because I'm so tired. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, I know. It's, it's sort of... <laughs> It's, a, it's good hypnagogic, um, or maybe bad, depending on what, how insomniac you are, is either your brain will be kind of dancing in a tabarima, or you, it'll just lead you down to the pathways of sleep, and that will be good. Um, okay, are you, what are, you, are you liking it, I hope? Are you loving it? Yeah, kind of? At, at moments. At moments? What are the moments you love? When Byron gets like back into it, like his voice more, uh huh. Because like the little parts where he like interjects with like his thoughts, I think are just really funny. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say too. Like when he's just like speaking like out of the story, I'm just like, you go, Byron. <laughs> 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 It'll be like in the middle of a sentence, and I'm just like. And then he'll start thinking about, do I really digress a lot? <laughs> it's it it really is. It, I do have a problem with digression. Let's talk about that for a little while. <laughs> Um, except then he starts talking about something else. He forgets to talk about digression, and he digresses away from digression. Um, he refers at one point, if any of you has taken the 18th century novel, you may know about Tristram Shandy, um, which is the weirdest of 18th century novels and one of the weirdest novels ever written. No, people don't know about this. Um, it's, a, it's a novel which is all digression, um, and uh, it's, it's really pretty amazing. Um, Tristram Shandy's trying to tell the story of his life, and it, he begins with the moment of his conception, which he thinks was messed up, because um, his mother suddenly asks his father, did you remember to wind the clock for the week? And he says, everything that went wrong with my life started right there, um, as you can imagine. Anyhow, he has a chapter in digressions. Um, the entire novel is entirely digressive. Um, Yorick's Starling, which is mentioned in Canto IV of um, Don Juan, is a reference to that. Um, are you liking, are you getting, are you noticing all the Shakespearean quotation? Um, cabin, cribbed, confined. People know where that's from? Juan is cabined, cribbed, confined. No, okay. Um, it's Macbeth. Macbeth and Othello appear a lot, um, sort of echo a lot in Byron's mind. And um, 
as he's searching for lines, lots of times Shakespearean lines come to him. Um, and, you know, those are good lines to come to you. Um, that's, that's a good thing. Um, do you not like the story? Is it too boring? Is it too, um, too much uh, gorgeous but pointless description? Yeah, Meryl. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think it, sometimes I just kind of, I forget what we're talking about, I think. Because it'll go on for a while and be like, oh, what, what is even, I forget what, like, where we are. Yeah. So, but then he'll remind you. He'll say, where were we? Oh, yes. But you have to get through season. everything in order for him to say that. And so a lot of times I find myself reading it and then I have to go back and remember like what we're describing or talking about. I mean, it's just me. Maybe I check out too much when I read, but... Um, yeah, it's the variety of, of the kind of poetry that he's writing is, is huge. And at some points he, um, at one point he um, apologizes. He says the one thing that's bad about epics, remember this? Um, I don't know if I'll find it right away. Everyone got the emails, by the way, right about the, rhyming on the and rhyming on hence. Um, but, for example, he says in, I think it's actually in Canto 3, um, I don't know if I'm going to find this right away. Um, no, there's, there's, there's plenty to talk about. I'm not going to uh, look for this. Um, but he does talk, where he talks about digression in Canto 3. This is uh, stanza 96. Um, so there he's um, spending some time talking about the um, biographical life of poets and whether they're relevant or not. Um, he's considering that. Um, and um, I guess it's actually worth looking at this whole section. Um, I did want us to look at again at the end of um, the first canto, but it's not going to happen. Um, so they're at a feast. Um, Juan and Haiti are at a feast, and one of the things that happens is that a poet sings. Um, so if you go back to Canto Three, stanza seventy-eight, um, and remember that um, Julia's father is observing this. He's shocked by what he's seeing, Lambro is. Um, because, but everyone thinks he's dead, and he doesn't know that not only did they think he's dead, but they mourned for him a while, but um, now all he thinks that's happening is he's being betrayed. Um, and so here are Juan and Julia, and I mean, Ju not Julia's father, excuse me, Haiti's father. So here are Julian and Juan and Haiti, um, stands 78, and now they were diverted by their sweet dwarfs, dancing girls, black eunuchs, and a poet, which made their new establishment complete. The last was of great fame and liked to show it. So the famous poet, he liked to prove that um, he was good. His verses rarely wanted their due feet. What does that mean? The meter. Yeah, they were metrical. Um, he was... God, he was good. He could even keep the meter. Um, and for his theme, he seldom sung below it. He, being paid to satirize or flatter, as the psalm says, indicting a good matter, so quoting the psalms. 
He praised the present and abused the past, reversing the good custom of old days. So what did poets used to do? Yeah. He's doing the opposite. He's saying things are better now. Yeah. And poets used to be gadflies. That is, look what's happened to this society. Um, Homer, for example, is always saying stuff like, Achilles picked up a stone, the kind of stone that 10 men today couldn't pick up, men being what they now are, but Achilles picked it up easily. Um, so you get that all over the Iliad. Um, but this poet praised the present and abused the past, reversing the good custom of old days. An Eastern anti-Jacobin at last, he turned preferring pudding to no praise. So he's become conservative, anti-Jacobin. Preferring pudding to no praise um, is a variation on the idea that a bad poet would pre prefer pudding to praise, that is, prefer to be well-fed than for people to say he's a great poet, but he's starving. But here he's getting praised for and pudding for flattering those he's singing to. For some years, for some few years, his lot had been o'ercast by his seeming independent in his lays. But now he sung the Sultan and the Pasha with truth like Sadi and with verse like Crashaw. Um, so basically, again, we're think this is Byron critiquing um, poets like Wordsworth and Sadi in particular. Um, do people know who Crashaw is? Yeah. Uh, do you remember reading any last year? Can you remember any Crashaw? No, but he was uh, in that group with Cooley and Lovelace and Suckling, right? Well, no, he was more with Dunn, um, Cooley and Dunn and Vaughan and Herbert. So he's a metaphysical poet. Um, and no one ever found his verses beautiful. Um, if you guys know Dunn, and if you know Dunn's hardest kind of poetry, um, that's what Crashaw is like, but without any of Dunn's beauty, or very little of Dunn's beauty. <clears throat> so he was a man who had seen many changes and always changed as true as any needle, his polar star being one which rather ranges and not the fixed. So he always went with power. He followed power. He knew the way to wheedle. So vile he escaped the doom which oft avenges, and being fluent, save indeed when feed ill, that is fed badly, he lied with such a fervor of intention, there was no doubt he earned his laureate pension. So now we know for sure we're talking about Savi, the poet laureate. But he had genius when a turncoat has it. Um, so we get this long um, attack on this poet, but then we get to stanza 83, but now being lifted into high society and having picked up several odds and ends of free thoughts in his travel, for variety, he deemed, being in a lone isle among friends, that without any danger of variety, might, for long lying, make himself amends, and singing, as he sung in his warm youth, agree to a short armistice with truth. So now, for once, he's going to sing a true song. That's what Byron says. Um, and then we get at the end of stanza 86 um, in a pretty great mosaic line. In Italy, he'd ape the trecentisti. Who are those, Maria? Um, like Dante. 
the poets of what century? Yes. Yeah, and why are they called the Trecentisti? Here, you say it. Because they date in the 14th century. Yeah, the 1300s. Um, that is, so, Trecentum, or Trecenti means um, 1300s, but, oh, you would have known that too, right? Um, but um, in Italy, you drop the one. So, if you know the Bertolucci movie, 1900, um, anyone know that movie? Um, it's a great movie about the 20th century. In the, its English title is 1900. Do you know its Italian title? Uh, yeah, I, I didn't see it. So. The, the Italian title yeah. is no. Do you know it? Novecento. Novecento, 900. So in Italy, you would just you just um, the Y2K problem. Do you guys know about that? Um, the Y2K problem in Italy was slightly easier because it was only three digits, not four, that had to be dealt with. Okay. Um, so, in Italy, he'd ape the Trecentisti. In Greece, he'd sing some sort of hymn like this chi. Is that how to pronounce it? I think so. This T. And then we get this great song right in the middle of the poem. Um, originally, Byron wanted this song to be, he started writing this song in Ottava Rima, and then he decided, no, he just write it as a song. Um, so the song is in six-line stances, not eight. Um, that is A, B, A, B, C, C. And there you can feel it's as though he's leaving out the third of the pair of lines in the first six lines. So it's not A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C, but just A, B, A, B, C, C. <coughs> and then we get what is really one of Byron's most beautiful songs. The Isles of Greece, the Isles of Greece, where burning Sappho loved and sung where grew the arts of war and peace, where Delos rose and Phoebus sprung. Eternal summer gilds them yet, but all except their sun is set. So who's Sappho? Um, love poetry. Yeah, the great love poet um, from the Isle of Lesbia. And um, one of the greatest, um, some say the greatest of Greek lyric poets. Um, the, Greece is the origin of Western civilization, he's saying. Um, but now everything is gone from it except the weather. Eternal summer gilds them yet, but all except their sun is set. The scion and the Taean muse, the hero's harp, the lover's lute, have found the fame your shores refuse. Their place of birth alone is mute to sounds which echo further west than your sire's islands of the blessed. So everyone in the west likes Homer and likes the Greek poets. Um, but in Greece alone, they have no honor. And then the great and famous stanza, the mountains look on Marathon, and Marathon looks on the sea, and musing there an hour alone, I dreamed that Greece might still be free. For standing on the Persian's grave, I could not deem myself a slave. So what happened in Marathon, do people know? There was a battle. Sorry? There was a battle. There was a battle. And, yeah, battle. Where the Greek, the Greeks defeated yeah. the Persians. Okay. And the, where the Marathon as a run comes from, 
is that a messenger was sent to Athens. It's 26 miles, 385 yards from Athens. And a messenger ran from Marathon to report that the Greeks were victorious, ran to Athens with the news. Um, so the, the, the track competition, the marathon, the end of every Olympics, is based on um, this original moment. So <clears throat> here's a place where the Greeks defeated the Persians. The Persians here are stand-ins for the Turks, for the Ottomans. That is, it's a clash, it continues to be a clash between an Islamic empire, um, then not Persian, but now Persian, um, then simply Eastern, Oriental in some sense, which is now um, the Ottoman Empire. Um, and Greece is under the um, dominion of the Ottoman Empire. That was the independence that um, Byron died fighting for. Um, so this poet thinks of the time when the Greeks defeated the Persians. The mountains look on Marathon and Marathon looks on the sea, and musing there, in our alone, I dreamt that Greece might still be free. For standing on the Persian's grave, I could not deem myself a slave. A king sat on the rocky brow, which looks o'er seaborne Salamis, and ships by thousands lay below, and men and nations, all were his. He counted them at break of day, and when the sun set, where were they? Um, so that's the story about Xerxes seeing his millions of ships attacking Greece and again losing. And where were they and where art thou, my country? On thy voiceless shore the heroic lay is tombless now. So Greece was great then, but now it's gone. The heroic bosom beats no more, and must thy lyre, so long divine, degenerate into hands like mine. So he's what's left, this sad trimmer, this flatterer. He's what's left of the great Greek poets. Um, so his poem goes on for a while. It's very beautiful, and it's Byron, in some sense, by putting, it, putting this poem into the mouth of this um, entertaining poet who's there with some eunuchs and a dwarf. Um, there's a way in which he can make the song stand out by itself. This is the song. It doesn't matter who's singing it. It doesn't matter what the situation is. This is a song, a dirge of lament for what's happened to Greece. Um, and then we get to um, stanza 87. Thus sung, or would, or could, or should have sung the modern Greek intolerable verse, if not like Orpheus quite when Greece was young, yet in these times he might have done much worse. His strain displayed some feeling, right or wrong, and feeling in a poet is the source of others' feeling. So there you get one of several places where Byron reflects on what poetry is. Feeling in a poet is the source of others' feeling. And you can partly tell that he means this by the way he makes fun of it almost immediately. But they are such liars and take all colors, like the hands of dyers. So ah, poets, they're just liars. Um, they take all colors like the hands of dyers. Um, anyone recognize that illusion? The hands of dyers? 
that's also Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, the dyer's hand, Shakespeare says, um, which takes the color of what it works in. Um, so poets are the source of other feelings, and yet forget it. They're just liars. Um, and poetry is pointless, he will go on to say. Um, but words are things, and a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands, perhaps millions, think. Tis strange the shortest letter which man uses instead of speech may form a lasting link of ages. To what straits old time reduces frail man when paper, even a rag like this, survives himself, his tomb, and all that's his. Um, <clears throat> so the poetry lasts. This isn't the place where he says poetry is pointless, but it's pointless to the poet. Um, the poetry lasts on paper, and somehow paper outlasts lives. And when his bones are dust, his grave a blank, his station, generation, even his nation become a thing or nothing, save to rank in chronological commemoration, some dull MS. What does MS mean? Yes? No. Um, nice guess, though. Majesty ship. No. Manuscript. Um, it's a standard abbreviation for manuscript. Um, you'll sometimes see MSS, two S's, which, which is just the plural. Um, so um, people will write about, um, I, have se I sent you my, my MS last week. Have you, have you received it? I would like to know what you think. Um, so some dull manuscript, some dull MS, oblivion long has sank or graven stone found in a barracks station. What's he talking about? Indeed, the foundation of a closet may turn his name up as a rare deposit. So what graven stone might have been found? What's he thinking of in particular? Starts with an R. The Rosetta Stone. Yeah. So you'll find, I mean, he's thinking more generally of just um, archaeologists digging around or Napoleon soldiers digging around and finding these old inscriptions on pieces of stone. Um, and that may be how poetry survives for 3,000 years. Um, and glory long has made the sages smile. Tis something, nothing, words, illusion, wind. Um, so the idea that glory can last is ridiculous. Tis something, nothing, words, illusion, went. Anyone hear an echo there? Tis something, nothing? From where? Lear? No. Tis something, nothing, twas mine, tis his, and hath been slave to thousands. But he who filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him, but makes me poor indeed. Does that sound familiar? I just made it up, really. No. <laughs> Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing. Twas mine. Tis his. No? No? Good guesses. It is Othello. See, it's like trivia to pursue. Whenever you want to say it's not, mm -hmm. that's probably the right answer. Yeah. <coughs> it's Iago talking to Othello um, and saying reputation and good name is what really matters. Um, your purse is trash, tis something, 
nothing. Twas mine, tis his. So this is what, again, I'm not saying, oh, look, allusion to Othello, how do we read it? Um, we don't. What we do is we say that these are the words that are always echoing in Byron's mind. That is that um, there's something not unserious about my asking you whether you were starting to dream in Ottava Rima. Byron did, or at least he dreamt an iambic pentameter. Um, that seems pretty clear. Um, Shakespearean lines were always there in his mind. Um, Shakespearean lines and, and lines of other poets were always just what the um, verbal, the kind of acoustic background, um, the traffic noise of his mind would have been like. Um, and so they're always ready for him. And it's just, it's just really neat to see how, how easily, quickly open he is to such things. And glory has made the sages smile to something, nothing, words, illusion, wind. Depending more upon the historian's style than on the name a person leaves behind. Troy owes to Homer what Whist owes to Hoyle. Who's Hoyle? This you know. Ever hear the phrase according to Hoyle? No, really? You've never seen Hoyle's rules in games? Huh. Do you guys like not play bridge or poker or anything, or do you just do it on the internet? I bet Hoyle's on the internet. So Hoyle is basically, huh, I'm actually surprised. You finally surprised me. Um, the phrase according to Hoyle, if you Google that phrase, which you won't do right now, um, you will find it everywhere. Hoyle um, was essentially the person who wrote down and did a, did a um, one volume compendium of rules for all the different games. Um, so it's Hoyle who will tell you how you figure out what a trump is in whist. Hoyle who will tell you that, um, that the order of suits in bridge is um, clubs, diamonds, hearts, spades, followed by no trump. Hoyle, who will tell you that you can take a pawn en passant in chess. Um, so Hoyle's rules for cards and games, or I think it's called laws for cards and games, um, is you can find it anywhere. Um, bookstores sell it in paperback. It's... Um, one of the most widely sold books ever. And if you have a disagreement about what happens in a game, you look it up in Hoyle. If, if you say, wait a second, that's mine, um, because, we're, because five, four, three, two, ace is a perfect low, you can look it up in Hoyle, and Hoyle will say, no, that's a straight, and it's not a perfect low. Perfect low is seven, five, four, three, two, um, or whatever. Um, so Hoyle is where you go to adjudicate the rules of games, to learn them and to adjudicate them. Um, so it's hilarious but great of Byron to be comparing Hoyle to Homer. That is, um, Troy owes to Homer what Whist owes to Hoyle. Um, Hoyle tells you how to play Whist, makes you understand Whist. Um, Homer makes you understand Troy. Same thing, totally parallel. The present century was growing blind to the great Marlborough's skill in giving knocks until his late life by Archdeacon Cox. So Marlborough is one of the great 18th century, early 18th century British generals. Um, people forgot about him until his biography was written. 
And then we get a consideration of some other poets. Milton's the prince of poets, so we say. A little heavy. Did you guys find that? A little, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, but if you agree with Byron, that's fine. <laughs> Milton's the prince of poets, so we say a little heavy, but no less divine. An independent being in his day, learned, pious, temperate in love and wine. But his life falling into Johnson's way, we're told this great high priest of all the nine, was whipped at college, a harsh sire, odd spouse, for the first Mrs. Milton left his house. So who's Johnson, anyone know? Yeah. Yeah. Say it in chorus. Samuel. Samuel Johnson. Who, who wrote um, The Lives of the Poets, and um, one of the lives that people still read is his life of Milton. Um, <coughs> Johnson very famously said of uh, Paradise Lost that it's a great work, but it must be owned that no man ever wished it longer, um, and that you put it down, you read it with admiration, um, you put it down um, to take a break, um, and then you find that you're not picking it up again. Um, so um, Johnson disagreed a lot with Milton's politics and took it out on um, criticizing Milton a lot. He also took great delight in talking about how long it took for the first edition of Paradise Lost to sell out. So he basically said, you know, oh, Milton, sure, yes, definitely the greatest English poet, but you should notice that it took something like 20 years before the first edition, which is only 500 copies, before the last copy was sold. Um, so that tells you something, says Johnson. Um, so Milton is great, but Johnson told us all his foibles. All these are certes, entertaining facts. What does certes mean? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's an anti antique poetic word for, for sure. Um, you'll find it in Shakespeare all the time. Uh, and it means... Um, definitely, but in a casual way. All these are certes, entertaining facts like Shakespeare stealing deer. So there's a story that Shakespeare poached deer um, in his early 20s. Lord Bacon's bribes, because Bacon um, did take bribes, like Titus's youth and Caesar's earliest acts, like Burns, whom Dr. Curry well describes, like Cromwell's pranks. But although truth exacts these amiable descriptions from the scribes as most essential to their hero's story, they do not much contribute to his glory. So it makes a poet, <coughs> a poet, says Byron, is not his biography or her biography, but the poems themselves. All, but then he attacked Southey's biography. All are not moralists like Southey when he prated to the world of pantisocracy. So we talked about that. That's when Southey and Coleridge we're going to go um, form a utopian commune on the Susquehanna River um, in the 1790s, and they called it their pantisocracy. And what pantisocracy means is something like rule by all. That is, that it would be equal, perfect democracy. All would have an equal um, power to rule it. All are not moralists like Southey when he prayed it to the world of pantisocracy, or Wordsworth unexcised, unhired, who then seasoned his peddler poems with democracy. So before Wordsworth got his job as collector of excise taxes, um, before he was hired by the government, then he was pro-democracy. 
or Coleridge long before his flighty pen let to the Morning Post its aristocracy. So now he starts writing for the conservative Morning Post. When he and Southey, following the same path, espoused two partners, milliners of Bath. That is, they married um, sisters. Such names at present cut a convict figure, the very Botany Bay in moral geography. What's Botany Bay, anyone know? Ever watch a Star Trek movies? There's a starship called Botany Bay, run by Ricardo Montalban, who's the greatest of the villains in the old Star Trek, these pre-J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. So Botany Bay is a place in Australia that prisoners were sent, were transported to um, when they were convicted and forced to leave England. Um, <coughs> Their loyal reason, renegado rigor, a good manure for their more bare biography. Wordsworth's last quarto, by the way, is bigger than any since the birthday of typography. A drowsy, frowsy poem called The Excursion, written in a manner which is my aversion. So he's really digressing here about poetry, and then he starts noticing that he's digressing and stands in 96. If I have any fault, it is digression. Um, and then he starts digressing some more. He says, let's go back, but let me to my story, he says at the beginning of 96, but uh, we don't get to the story till 101, um, because he has to spend some more time talking about how terrible Wordsworth is. Um, and then at line 100, you again get him declaring his own loyalties. Peddlers and boats and wagons. Oh, ye shades of Pope and Dryden, are we come to this? Now, what he's doing, what he quotes in stanza 98, is a poem that Wordsworth has recently published called Peter Bell. And I draw your attention to it because Shelley is going to write a parody of Peter Bell that we're going to look at called Peter Bell III, which is, Peter Bell is actually not a bad poem, um, but Peter Bell III, Shelley's parody of it, is a much greater poem. Um, but at the beginning of Peter Bell, um, Wordsworth, or the speaker of the poem, uh, wishes that he had a little boat that he could sail around the sky in. Um, and um, oh, he says, I wish I had a little boat and then I could go sailing around the sky. And then somebody says, and now I have a little boat. It's like a nursery rhyme. And he goes up in his little boat and he looks at the world. Um, <laughs> and so Byron thinks this is ridiculous. Um, we learned from Horace in Stanza 98, Homer sometimes sleeps. We feel without him, Wordsworth sometimes wakes. So what's the joke? Yeah, or that, so you know the phrase Homer sometimes nods? That's the phrase in Horace, that even Homer nods. It's a very, have you ever heard that phrase? Even Homer nods? So basically it's nods like in Wink and Blinkin' and Nod. Do you know that nursery rhyme? Yeah? The, you, you all don't? Wink and Blinkin' and Nod are, they're, they're three, they're like the Rice Krispies. In fact, I think the Rice Krispies, Snap, Crackle, and Pop are based on Wink and Blinkin' and Nod. And Winkin, see you're doing it. Lincoln, Blinken, and Nod are the three um, young boys who bring you to sleep. You start winking, you start blinking, and you nod, and you nod off. Um, so what Horace said, the idea of nodding off, that goes back to Horace. And what he says is Homer is sometimes inconsistent. You can, if you read Homer with a fine-tooth comb, you'll see self-contradictions there. Um, 
very famously, for example, Telemachus is described when Odysseus is, um, has not yet reached the island of Calypso, which is right after the end of the Trojan War. We're concerned about Telemachus, but, it, but Telemachus was only 10 years old then. Um, but Homer forgets that. Um, he's described Telemachus at age 20. And um, he forgets that 10 years earlier, Telemachus would only have been 10. So that's an, that's an example of Homer nodding. Or people die twice in Homer. In the Iliad, someone is killed in book 14, and then Homer forgets that this person was hideously killed in book 14. So has the same person hideously killed again in book 21. Um, so that's Homer nodding. Um, he makes mistakes. He falls asleep. Um, so the joke is, well, if Homer sometimes nods, we can see that occasionally Wordsworth doesn't nod. Most of the time, he's just snoring away. Um, but occasionally, he wakes up to say something before he starts snoring away again. So we learn from Horace, the poet, Homer sometimes sleeps. We feel without him, Wordsworth sometimes wakes. But why does he wake? To show with what complacency he creeps with his dear wagoners around his lakes. So he's referring to a poem called Benjamin the Wagoner. He wishes for a boat to sail the deeps of ocean, no of air. And then he makes another outcry for a little boat and drivels seas to set it well afloat. So just a sea of drivel so that his boat will float. Um, if he must feign sweep o'er the ethereal plain and Pegasus run restive in his wagon, could he not beg the loan of Charles's wain or pray Medea for a, <coughs> for a single dragon? Or if too classic for his vulgar brain, he feared his neck to, virtue, to venture such a nag on, that is, he feared um, to venture on such a nag his neck, and he must needs mount nearer to the moon, could not the blockhead ask for a balloon? So why a little bow? Why not a balloon? Paddlers and boats and wagons, oh ye shades of Pope and Dryden, <coughs> are we come to this? The trash of such sort not alone evades contempt, but from the bathos vast abyss floats scum-like uppermost, and these jackades of sense and song above your graves may hiss. The little boatman and his Peter Bell can sneer at him who drew a kitafel? So who drew a kitafel? So who wrote the poem? Absalom and a kitafel. No, Dryden. Oh. Now Wordsworth loved Milton, um, but he had contempt for both Pope and Dryden. And um, what his contempt was about was um, that he thought writing in rhyme, and in particular writing in couplets, um, caused people, caused poets, um, to turn everything into an opposition. Everything was, um, on the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that. Or this leads to its opposite, which is that. And that there was no subtlety possible in writing in rhyme to couplets. So that's what Byron, what I quoted for you last week, when Byron says, um, prose poets like blank verse, I'm fond of rhyme. Um, good poets never should quarrel with their tools. Or good workmen never quarrel with their tools. Um, Byron is defending rhyme against Wordsworthy and blank verse. Um, and he's saying that uh, part of the 
pleasure of poetry is the pleasure of rhyming. And that if you give up that pleasure, and if you give up the wit in poetry, um, you're giving up a whole lot of what's important about poetry in order to think you're doing something more important. Um, so what Byron won't do is write philosophical poems. Um, it's not that there aren't philosophical ideas in his poems. There are. But he doesn't think that what poetry should be is the exposition of philosophy. Because he thinks what happens if you take poetry seriously in that way, what you're missing is the best thing that poetry has to give, which is joy to life. So Byron is pretty grim about life. I mean, I, I, he's grim from the start. But there's a way in which Don Juan is grimmer than Childe Harold, which is a kind of theatricalization of grimness. But by the time you get to Don Juan, he's not saying, oh, you know, my lacerated heart um, can no longer um, take joy in anything. What he's saying is, sure, I can take joy. This is, this is total fun, but all the world has to offer that's good is fun. Um, or if it has something else to offer early on in life, um, what is what it offers early is something that goes bad. So when he's, if you think of the narrator's um, description of Juan and Haiti, he says, "How could their love last? Love doesn't. This was first love. First love is really, really wonderful. I know how wonderful it is." But I also know that if they were to live, they would turn into what everyone else turns into, um, people who are no longer idealists. I love contemplating their idealism. I love, the narrator says, I love feeling um, the joy and the innocence that they take in each other and um, the pleasure that they take together and the way their hearts are entirely um, given to one another, but such things don't last. And then he starts cracking a lot of uh, maniacal jokes about how they don't last, how first love is something that he knows won't last. Um, that um, I mean, there, there are dozens of um, examples of this. Um, let's... Let's go to Canto 4. Um, This is just before Lambro um, comes in and destroys everything. Um, Yeah, um, I'm just thinking, 
just one place where where um, he talks just the beginning of Canto three. He talks about uh, what will inevitably happen to love. Um, yeah, let's look at the beginning of that. Um, Hail Muse, etc. We left Juin, and what you should know, by the way, is that this that Cantos three, four, and five came out as a, as a separate volume. So he published Canto Canto one and then Canto two, and then it was successful enough, although he got a lot of very vicious reviews, which he alludes to um, when he says, "I'm just this is a very chaste poem. I don't understand why people are writing these mean reviews." Um, but um, he then publishes Cantos three, four, and five in a single volume. Um, and so what you would do is you would buy the book and you open it up to page one and we get Hail Muse, etc., um, which is pretty great. Um, we left Juin sleeping, pillowed upon a fair and happy breast and watched by eyes that never yet knew weeping and loved by a young heart, too deeply <coughs> blessed to feel the poison through her spirit creeping or know who rested there. Um, so she didn't know what was happening to her that love was poison. A foe to rest was who rested there in her spirit. A foe to rest had soiled the current of her sinless years and turned her pure heart's purest blood to tears. So in her is this poison, although she doesn't know it, and in fact won't live to know it. But um, here Byron is reflecting upon love. And then he asks, O oh, love, what is it in this world of ours which makes it fatal to be loved? Ah, why with cypress branches hast thou wreathed thy bowers and made thy best interpreter a sigh? So cypress branches are trees of mourning. Um, the cypress is the tree is a tree of mourning. If you go to cemeteries, what the trees that are planted there are cypresses. So why is the proper plant of love a cypress? Why does do love and sighing go together? As those who dote on odors pluck the flowers and place them on their breast, but place to die. So if you like odors, you pluck flowers, you put the flower in your buttonhole where the flower dies. Thus the frail beings we would fondly cherish are laid within our bosoms, but to perish. In her first passion, woman loves her lover, in all the others, all she loves is love, which grows a habit she can ne'er get over and fits her loosely like an easy glove, as you may find whene'er you like to prove her. <coughs> One man alone at first her heart can move. She then prefers him in the plural number, not finding that the additions much encumber. So once you're over your first love, it's just like, yeah, lots of men, that would be good. Um, and he goes on, by this, like this, let's just go to um, stanza nine, a good account of Shakespeare there. Um, or stanza eight, there's, some, there's doubtless something in domestic doings which forms, in fact, true love's antithesis. Romances painted full length people's wooings, but only give a bust of marriages. So people being in love, falling in love, we get lots of literature about that. Um, full length, a full length portrait of all that. But when you get to marriage, you only get a little bit of it, just the bust. Um, for no one cares for matrimonial cooings. There's nothing wrong in a connubial kiss, 
think you if Laura had been Petrarch's wife, he would have written sonnets all his life. So Petrarch very famously wrote all his sonnets to Laura. But if they'd been married, he would have stopped writing sonnets. All tragedies are finished by a death. All comedies are ended by a marriage. The future states of both are left to faith. For authors fear description might disparage the worlds to come of both or fall beneath and then both worlds would punish their miscarriage. So leaving each their pre so leaving each their priest and prayer book ready, they say no more of death or of the lady. So we end both comedies and tragedies with a priest and a prayer book, either because of a marriage or a death, some ceremony, but we don't say more about it because we can't describe it. Well, and then he says, the only two that in my recollection have sung of heaven and hell or marriage are Dante and Milton. What's that second or mean? Or that, that or in line two? The only two that in my recollection have sung of heaven and hell. So what have Dante and Milton written about? Sorry? Heaven and hell? Yeah. Dante wrote the Inferno. Dante wrote the Paradiso. Milton wrote Paradise Lost. The first two books of Paradise Lost occur where? The first two books? Oh, sorry. I think. No. <coughs> and book three, Hail Holy Light? Heaven. Yeah. Um, so we get a lot of heaven in books three and um, uh, later on when we get the war in heaven. So um, Dante and Milton have sung of both heaven and hell. And what does or marriage mean there? That marriage is heaven Yeah, heaven followed by hell. Um, so it's like Moby Dick or The Whale. That's the full title or, or the potential titles of Moby Dick. If you look at the title page, it's Moby Dick or The Whale. Um, two possible titles. Um, Milton and Dante have sung of heaven or hell, or as we might otherwise call it, heaven and hell, or as we might otherwise call it, marriage. Now, it's also the case that the or is plausibly deniable because they've actually sung of both. Um, that is, Dante and Milton do describe heaven and hell. They also describe marriage. So the only two that in my recollection have sung of heaven and hell, or marriage, are Dante and Milton. And of both, the affection was hapless in their nuptials. And that's what we're going to see again later. Um, they didn't have good marriages. For some bar of fault or temper ruined the connection. Such things, in fact, it don't ask much to mar. Um... So something went wrong and their marriages were bad. But Dante's Beatrice and Milton's Eve were not drawn from their spouses, you can see. Um, so Dante did write about a woman that he was desperately in love with, namely Beatrice. Um, Milton did write about the beauty of Eve and what uh, Byron is saying is, but they're not writing about people they were married to. Um, because marriage blights love. Um, okay, now go back to Canto 4. Um, and this is the last night that Juan and, and KD have together. Um, and they both feel um, some premonition of something. Um, so stanza 21, let's say. Um, 
I know not why, but in that hour tonight, that is the, um, it's the sunset hour, even as they gazed, a sudden tremor came and swept as twere across their hearts' delight, like the wind or a harp string or a flame. So a tremor swept across their hearts the way a wind might sweep across a harp string or a flame. When one is shook in sound, which one is shook in sound? The harp string. And one in sight, the flame. And thus a boding flashed through either frame and called from Juan's breast a faint low sigh while one new tear arose in Hades' eye. That large black prophet eyes seemed to dilate and follow far the despairing sun as if their last day of a happy date with his broad, bright, and drooping orb were gone. Juan gazed on her as to ask his fate. He felt a grief, but knowing cause for none, his glance inquired of hers for some excuse for feelings causeless, or at least abstruse. So they're both feeling uneasy. She turned to him and smiled, but in that sort which makes not others smile, then turned aside. Whatever feeling shook her, it seemed short and mastered by her wisdom or her pride. When Juan spoke to, it might be in sport of this their mutual feeling, she replied. If it should be so, but it cannot be, or I at least shall not survive to see. So if something, she doesn't know what, but if something terrible is going to happen, she's not going to survive. Juan would question further, but she pressed his lip to hers and silenced him with this, and then dismissed the omen from her breast, defying augury with that fond kiss. Defying augury? Anyone? What does it mean? Yeah, augury is actually prophecy. Um, do people know how augury works? It's looking at bird flight and prophesying on the basis of what birds are doing. Um, so this is something that was done um, in ancient times. Um, there were various prophets who would um, watch which way birds flew up and decide whether good or bad things were going to happen. Um, now it simply means um, if something augurs well, it means that it's a sign for good things to happen. If it augurs badly, it's a sign that bad things will happen. Um, but augury is um, a prophecy for what's to come. Anyone know where the line, we defy augury, comes from? Yeah, good. So say it's not? <laughs> um, it's not a felt. Oh, well. Um, no, if anything mislike thee, do it not. Not a wit. We defy augury. There's special pro Hamlet, yes. There's special providence in the fall of the sparrow. Um, that is, that, that's augury too. Um, if you think the fall of the sparrow matters, you think that the sparrow doesn't have its own life. But Hamlet says there's special providence in the fall of the sparrow. Even the sparrow will fall for its own life, not for mine. Um, so we defy augury, says Hamlet. We're going to do 
Whatever happens, I'm going to face up to it. Um, so she dismissed the omen from her breast, defying augury with that fond kiss. And no doubt of all methods, tis the best. Some people prefer wine. Tis not amiss. So sometimes a kiss is the best way to get over anxiety. Sometimes it's wine. Um, he thinks, yeah, they're both good. Kiss is probably better, but some people prefer wine. Tis not amiss. I have tried both. So those who would apart take may choose between the headache and the heartache. Um, so if you have to decide how you're going to deal with anxiety, you can either feel love for someone and be kissing them, and maybe that would get you um, out of whatever is bothering you, or you could have a drink. Um, the result of love is going to be heartache. heartache, and the result hangover. of drinking is a hangover. <laughs> One of the two, according to your choice, woman or wine, you'll have to undergo. Both maladies are taxes on our joys. That is, so whether your choice is woman or wine, you're going to have to pay a tax on your joy, either heartache or headache. But which to choose, I really hardly know. And if I had to give a casting voice, that is, if I had to cast the, um, the vote that would be decisive, if I had to give a casting voice, for both sides, I could many reasons show and then decide, without great wrong to either, it were much better to have both than neither. So um, sex and drinking, you know, you, why choose between them? Choose them both. So there's a little digression right in the midst of this really, really beautiful section. Juan and Haiti gazed upon each other with swimming looks of speechless tenderness, which mixed all feelings, friend, child, lover, brother, <coughs> and all that best can mingle and express when two pure hearts are poured in one another and love too much and yet cannot love less, but almost sanctify the sweet excess by the immortal wish and power to bless. Um, so they love too much, but it's okay because they, want, they wish so much to bless the other, to love the other. Mixed in each other's arms and heart in heart, why did they not then die? They had lived too long, should an hour come to bid them breathe apart. Years could but bring them cruel things or wrong. The world was not for them, nor the world's art. For beings passionate as Sappho's song, so there's Sappho again. Love was born with them, in them so intense, it was their very spirit, not a sense. Um, so the world was not for them, nor the world's art. You said Romeo and Juliet before. Mm -hmm. um, does that echo Romeo and Juliet? Answer, yes. Uh, do you know the line, anyone? In R&J? It's... Um, that's what, that's what we Shakespeareans call it. Um, Romeo sees the apothecary and asks to buy some poison. And the apothecary says it's against the law. Um, and um, Romeo says, you should still sell it to me. Look how poor you are. Um, you're absolutely poverty struck, and I'm offering you money for this poison. And he says, and besides, the world is not thy friend, nor the world's laws. Um, so sell me the poison. So again, just these things are echoing in his mind. 
Let's go to the beginning of Canto 4. Um, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. <coughs> Where again he talks about himself. So this is Byron. Um, he added the first seven stanzas to Canto 4 when he decided um, to split. This was originally a single canto. Canto 3 went on like Cantos 1 and 2 at about 200 or 225, roughly, um, stanzas. But then he decided, no, I'm going to make them shorter, so he split them. And he then wrote an, an introduction to Canto 4. So this introduction is written after the rest of it is written. Nothing so difficult as a beginning. That's, again, Horace um, says that. Nothing so difficult as a beginning in poesy, unless perhaps the end. For oftentimes when Pegasus seems winning the race, he springs a wing, and down we tend. So Pegasus is the horse of the muses, the immortal horse, and the poet rides upon Pegasus. That's an old image. But then he sprains a wing, and down we tend. Like Lucifer, when hurled from heaven for sinning, our sin the same, and hard is his to mend, being pride. So poets suffer from the sin of pride, which leads the mind to soar too far till our own weakness shows us what we are. But time, which brings all beings to their level, so in time you reach the level that you belong at. But time, which brings all beings to their level, and sharp adversity, will teach at last man, and as we would hope, perhaps the devil, that neither of their intellects are vast. While youth's hot wishes in our red veins revel, we know not this, that is, that our intellects are not vast. While youth's hot wishes in our red veins revel, we know not this, the blood flows on too fast. But as the torrent widens towards the ocean, we ponder deeply on each past emotion. And now he thinks of himself in the past. As boy, I thought myself a clever fellow and wished that others held the same opinion. So what opinion? What did he want others to think? Hmm? So as boy, I thought myself a clever fellow and wished that others held the same opinion. They took it up when my days grew more mellow. So eventually they did think he was clever. But by then his days were growing more mellow. <coughs> and other minds acknowledged my dominion. Other people realized that I was really good. But it was starting not to matter to me anymore. Um, I wish they felt that way when I was a boy, not when I was grown up. Now my seer fancy falls into the yellow leaf. So what's that a quotation from? Macbeth. And what, do you remember the line of Macbeth? To fall into the yellow leaf this year. Almost, yeah. Um. It's what he quotes, remember we read that letter um, where he says, is it way of life or may of life? What do the editors now say? Um, it's Macbeth at the end of his life saying, my way of life is fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. And that which should troop with age, or that should go with old age, as honor troops of friends and so on, I must not live to have. So the line in Macbeth is, my way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. 
Um, just hearing that line, <coughs> what do you think Byron is doing with it? My way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. How do you think it's enjammed in, in, in Shakespeare? I'm sure if you look at the back of your book, you'll see it. Um, they'll, there'll be a note to it. But just as a guess, how do you think it's enjammed? Where's the line ending in Shakespeare? My way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. Yeah. Oh, your hand wasn't up? Oh, after sear. After sear. Um, It's actually, I'll ju it's, um, the two lines are, I have lived long enough. My way of life is fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. So those are the two lines. And the enchantment is act actually after leaf. But after sear is fine. There's a, there's a huge pause there. Um, I mean, to hear it that way is fine. Um, where isn't it enjammed? What really matters is where it's not enchanted in Shakespeare. On yellow. On yellow. Yeah. So what Byron is doing is he's taking this great Shakespearean line, falls into the yellow leaf. My seer fancy falls into the yellow leaf. And instead, he enjams it on the word yellow to make it rhyme with mellow and fellow. Um, and both reminds you of the original Shakespearean line and turns it into something funny, undoes the seriousness with which he would like to apply it to himself. Now my seer fancy falls into the yellow leaf, and imagination droops her pinion, and the sad truth which hovers o'er my desk turns what was once romantic to burlesque. So that's a really good self-description on Byron's part, a really knowing self-description that he was once writing poems that were romantic, but now they're turning into burlesque. That's what happened to his life. And if I laugh at any mortal thing, tis that I may not weep. And if I weep, tis that our nature cannot always bring itself to apathy. For we must steep our hearts first in the depths of Lethe's spring, ere what we, wish, what we least wish to behold will sleep. Uh, what happens if you... Um, Enter Lethe's, the river Lethe. What does it do? It's the river of what? Does anyone know? Forgetfulness. Um, so it's the river that if you go into it, you forget everything. Um, so if only you could get to Lethe's spring, then all the memories that are harassing you would sleep. Thetis baptized, or Thetis baptized her mortal son in Styx, who's Thetis the mother of? Achilles, um, so she dipped him in the river Styx, but held him by his, yeah. Um, Thetis baptized her mortal son in Styx. A mortal mother would on Lethe fix. That is, if you wanted to do your child, if you were a mortal mother and knew what mortal life was like and wanted to do your child the best could, you could, you would baptize him or her in the, in the river Lethe. Some have accused me of a strange design against the creed and morals of the land and trace it in this poem every line. 
I don't pretend that I quite understand my own meaning when I would be very fine. But the fact is that I have nothing planned unless it were to be a moment merry, a novel word in my vocabulary. Um, so he's saying some people think I'm writing this poem in order to corrupt the youth. I don't even understand some of my lines, he's saying, especially when I'm really being fine. But nothing is planned here. It's all just me trying to have fun. Um, let's, there are, two, there are two other little moments I want to look at. One is, again, at the end of Canto One. Um, this is uh, <coughs> start at line 212 I mean uh, stands at 212 of Canto 1 because here again he's describing what's happened to him and we're going to see an amazing version of this in Canto 5 as well. So at 2.12, um, non ego hoc ferem calida uenta consule planco. That is, I am not now what I, was, what I was in my hot youth under the council planco when he was consul. Horace said, and so say I, by which quotation there is meant a hint that some six or seven good years ago, long ere I dreamt of dating from the Brenta, that is, long before I went to Italy forever um, and saw a new life starting from when I crossed the Brenta River. Long ere I dreamt of dating from the Brenta, I was most ready to return a blow and would not brook at all this sort of thing in my hot youth when George III was king. So we already talked about that joke. George III is still king, but he's crazy, and so his son is the regent. But he says, six or seven years ago, I would have gotten into a fight with anyone who wrote the kind of reviews of, of, of my poetry that I'm getting now. But now, at 30 years, my hair is gray. I wonder what it would be like at 40. I thought of a peruke the other day. What's a peruke? A wig. Um, so he's thinking, yeah, I'm 30. My hair is turning gray. I'm really worried what I'm going to look like in 10 years. My heart is not much greener, and in short, I have squandered my whole summer while twas May, and feel no more the spirit to retort to his critics. I have spent my life both interest and principle, and deem not what I deemed, that is what I once deemed, my soul invincible. And then from this joke, suddenly we get this really passionate bit of poetry that then will turn into a joke again. No more, no more, oh, never more on me. The freshness of the heart can fall like dew, which out of all the lovely things we see extracts emotions beautiful and new, hived in our bosom like the bag of the bee. Thinks thou the honey with those objects grew? Alas, t'was not in them, but in thy power to double even the sweetness of a flower. So it used to be that we thought we were getting joy from the world. This is a little bit like the Intimations Ode. But it was actually what was in us. The world would give us um, a way to access the honey within ourselves. No more, no more, oh, never more, my heart, canst thou be my sole world, my universe. Once all in all, but now a thing apart, thou canst not be my blessing or my curse. The illusion's gone forever, and thou art insensible, I trust, but none the worse. And in thy, st in thy stead, instead of his heart, 
I've got a deal of judgment, though heaven knows how it ever found a lodgment. My days of love are over. Excuse me, my days of love are over. Me no more the charms of maid, wife, and still less of widow can make the fool of which they made before. So what's the joke there? So if you take the poetry as serious, my days of lover over, me no more the charms of maid. So what would, the charms of maid can, can still attract, let's say, can still waken hope in, is how we think the sentence is going to end. Um, so when would the charms of maid have filled him with love? At what age? When he was young, like Jewel. Um, what about the charms of a wife? Young-ish. Yeah, when he gets married. So there was a time when um, the charms of a maid filled me with joy, and, the, and getting married um, made my life happy, and still less of widow. Wait a second, how does that work? Yeah. So, when he's old too. sorry. When he's older too. When he's older, but what you now realize is, wait a second, this list is not a list of women that he wants to stick with. It's a list of women he wants to have sex with. So, wife there doesn't mean his own wife. It means wives of other men. So, sorry. Yeah. So. Exactly. So, so, you know, when I was younger, I would see maids and wives and widows and was just made fools of by them. Um, so there's just a great little turn there where you think what he's saying is, I wanted to get married, I fell in love with a, with a maid, I wanted to get married, but, and widow. Oh, wait a second, this is a different sort of list. It's just a list of women he wanted to sleep with. Um, so it doesn't matter if she's a maid, a wife, or a widow. He still was made a fool of. Um, so my days of love are over. Me no more the charms of maid, wife, and still less of widow can make the fool of which they made before. In short, I must not lead the life I did do. The credulous hope of mutual minds is o'er. The copious use of claret is forbid to. What's claret? Wine, yeah, so he's not allowed to drink as much as he used to drink either. So for a good old gentleman, so for a good old gentlemanly vice, I think I must take up with avarice, since he can't do any of the other vices. Ambition was my idol, which was broken before the shrines of sorrow and of pleasure. So he worshipped ambition, but he broke that idol because he felt sorrow and he wanted pleasure and he gave up his ambition. And the last two have left me many a token or which reflection may be made at leisure. Lots of, lots of relics of sorrow and of pleasure. Now, like Friar Bacon's brazen head, <coughs> which is legendary, I've spoken. Time is, time was, time's past. A chemic treasure is glittering youth. That is a chemical, an unstable chemical. A chemic treasure is glittering youth which I have spent betimes my heart in passion 
and my head on rhymes. So that's what he spent his youth on, passion and rhymes. Um, and that, again, is a pretty good and pretty winning um, autobiography, self-depiction on Byron's part. Okay, so our plan <coughs> is to finish Canto V um, by Thursday. No, fr Friday. Yeah, I still don't have these weeks down. Well, we have we had one full week? I think we've had one. Um, so our plan is to finish this by um, Friday, and then it'll be break, and um, you can catch up. We will actually have occasion to look at a little bit more of Don Juan, um, just a few passages from later on. For example, um, when Keats dies, Byron, who didn't really like Keats, um, Keats died after getting a really terrible review, which broke his heart. Did he die from the review? Of course not. But that was the mythology. Um, and Byron's comment on that is, to strange the mind, that very fiery particle should find itself snuffed at, thus snuffed out by an article. Um, so we'll look at some of, some of Byron's um, other comments. But... Canto 5 for Friday. See you then.